Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you some of the messages that you've sent us over the past couple of weeks. Uh, So, Rob, would you mind if I kick things off by reading a message that we got about our Machine Lords of Barnard 68 episodes? Let's do it. Okay, this first message comes from Aiden. Aiden writes, Hi, Robert and Joe. I just finished listening to your episode about post-biological intelligence. Towards the end of part two, you raised the question of whether such an intelligence would have something like emotions. This is a great question, and in the recent Vault episodes on invertebrate emotions, you shared some ideas that could help to answer it. In the Invertebrates episode, you focused on the ways that an internal emotional state could manifest as measurable behaviors. The example that I remember most clearly is the one about bees. After receiving a free sugary treat, bees will forage with a more optimistic bias. But after a simulated attack, they will forage with a more pessimistic bias. This change in behavior may be attributable to something like an emotion. Though as a parenthesis, Aiden adds, as a pre-post-biological intelligence writing this based on memory, I may be missing something from the B example. Feel free to add on or correct if you read it on air. Well, uh, nothing to add or correct so far, Aiden. You're doing good. Uh, Continuing. This got me thinking that maybe the same test could be applied to a machine intelligence if we could observe it. Maybe a free burst of gamma ray energy would cause it to display some optimistic behaviors, while a destructive, unexpected supernova would cause it to show more pessimistic behaviors, whatever that might look like. However, such an intelligence would probably have some similarity to modern machine learning in the sense that it would extrapolate based on past data. Optimism or pessimism would probably show up as an overreaction or underreaction to the stimulus, beyond what the cold calculation of an algorithm would predict. For example, if the machine knows that in the past a supernova or other negative stimulus has caused a 10% impact on its systems, the cold emotionless calculation of data would, uh, would suggest changing its behavior by 10%. On the other hand, if the machine had some kind of emotional state like pessimism, maybe it would change its behavior by 15%. That 5% difference could be uh, the way to tease out the effect of emotions from the effect of adaptive behavior based on past experience. The caveat here is that the observer would need to know what the emotionless baseline is. Maybe this is a study that only an even greater machine intelligence could carry out on smaller, simpler ones. It was fun exploring the connection between these episodes, so thanks for another week of great podcasts. Best, Aiden. Yeah, this is a good point, Aiden. So, uh, yeah, in that Invertebrate Emotions episode, we talked about the, the difficulties in separating out the, the different things that we would classify as emotions. Like, you might be able to regard an emotion like anger in one sense as an internal state that has a subjective felt quality to it. Like, it feels like something to be angry. And then, on uh, in another case, you could say anger is a set of externally 
uh, observable behaviors that you see clustered together uh, that res- you know they, they represent a certain number of, of biases in behavior that occur at the same time, maybe like uh, uh, a quickness to physical aggression or something like that and, and other things that would correlate with anger. Uh, and so those are definitely separate things. I guess you would have to leave aside the question of whether it would feel like something to, uh, to have an emotion for a post-biological intelligence the same way it would feel like something for us that comes back to the the question we talked about in the episode of whether post-biological intelligences would actually be conscious. And one part of having a conscious experience is having internal emotional states that feel like something. Yeah. The other part would just be like, would they have these sort of, uh, clusters of externally uh, observable behaviors that sort of uh, are seen together and they they represent a certain disposition toward external stimuli. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was a yeah, this was a good breakdown. I, I appreciate this. All right, let's hear from another listener. This one comes to us from Chris. Chris writes, "Hi Robert Joe and Seth. Good day." Your recent two-part episode on the Machine Lords of Barnard 68 has been a great listen. It is difficult to conceptualize how we could get to a post-biological point uh, and the time scale that might be involved, but it is a fun thought experiment. The topic was particularly relevant to a short story by Su Xin Lu that I am reading as part of an anthology work titled To Hold Up the Sky. I had first read The Three-Body Problem after hearing you mention it many times on past episodes. I really enjoy the way his sci-fi is written through a completely different lens that most Western readers are used to, um, uh, or maybe it's just me. This is great. I, uh, I did recommend uh, The Three-Body Problem in a previous uh, summer reading episode we did a few years back. I, I loved that novel, mm-hmm. uh, but I have not read any of uh, Sishin Liu's um Short stories, so so yeah, this is this is totally fresh to me. Chris. Yeah, yeah, same here. I uh, I did the audio book of the of um, of that of that first one, the three body problem, but I haven't read any of the subsequent uh, books in that series or any of his uh, shorter works. Ah, well, that is a, a dark forest that we should maybe both wander into. <laughs> All right. uh, They continue. The short story I'm referring to is titled Cloud of Poems. It is a fascinating story involving an advanced race of dinosaurs called the Devouring Empire, who have recently joined the greater galactic civilization coming to our solar system, enslaving humans and raising them as feedstock on their interstellar ship. And a particular particular, uh, human named uh, Yi Yi, who teaches classical Chinese literature, to the feedlot humans to make them more tender. <laughs> now, this is where the post-biological life comes in. Another member from the Greater Galactic Society comes into the solar system and is only referred to as, quote, a god. There's a lot of backstory, but it is made clear that this is a being from a significantly more advanced race uh, that has be- that has transformed itself into beings of pure energy with the ability to jump from one side of the Milky Way galaxy to the other. In this sci-fi world, it's explained that the level of civilization is based on the number of dimensions it can access. The esteemed God's race can access 11 dimensions. That's a lot of dimensions. In the episode, you discussed how the motivations of a post-biological life form might be different from our own and whether they would have the same concerns as a living being, etc. And this story gets at that point, which I think is relevant. If a race evolved to a point where individuals transformed past a stage where a lifespan is no longer a concern, I think they would not continue to have the same desires and motivations as their pre-biological selves. 
in this story, the esteemed god, who is an intergalactic art collector and researcher, is challenged by the human Yi Yi to become a better poet than the classical Chinese master uh, Li Bei. The human point is that even with all the technology that the esteemed god possesses, it cannot replicate the poetry of a human because it does not possess the ability to understand the human spiritual realm. Since this god is still an individual, albeit a being of pure energy, he takes the challenge, transforming himself into a human and attempting to surpass the poetry. Long story short, he fails, then instead decides to build a quantum computer to write and record every possible poem using the Chinese <laughs> alphabet and save them each on an atomic level storage device where each poem is stored on a single atom. It's then discussed that it will take 10 to the 172nd power uh, number of atoms to store every possible combination, and that unfortunately, there are only 10 to the 80th power of atoms in the entire universe. I don't know how to check these numbers, so I am unsure if they actually match up to reality. Uh, maybe Seth can help me out on that. <laughs> Let, let's hear it. Let's, Seth, quickly, in real time, uh, chime in and, uh, in fact, check those numbers for us. <laughs> he's got to go count them. Hold okay, on. Okay, he's going to count. He'll come back um, in... Uh, 10 to the 172nd power uh, minutes. Uh, So anyway, uh, the esteemed God then decides to start building the quantum computer, and to do so, he will need to deconstruct the entire solar system, humans, and the devouring empire to their uh, constituent atoms, a mere 10 to the 57th power. To do so, and (laughs) and has no qualms with the destruction to achieve those ends. This was an entirely too long email, but I did do my best to summarize an astounding work uh, by uh, Su Xin Liu. You should really just uh, just read it. Uh, but to but suffice to say, I think a post biological race that is de- descended from previously living beings would be extremely dangerous, especially if they have the power available to them, like the esteemed god of our story, willing to destroy entire races and solar systems with no second thought to achieve a goal. Again, great episode. Thanks for all you do, bringing us listeners great content. Best, Chris. Oh, thanks, Chris. Uh, this, this sounds like a like a great read. Yeah, yeah. I um. I, I love the ideas explored in this. Uh, you know, the, the, this this is definitely an ideas author that mm. um, the, you know, toys with with wonderful sci fi concepts. I mean, b- based on the the one novel I've read, um, that's kind of how it rolls out. Just a lot, there's a lot of uh, individuals discussing uh, very uh, at times high minded science scientific topics, but with some other fun stuff thrown in as well, like real world um, political concerns, uh, Chinese mm. mythology, etc. Yeah, totally. And I will say, uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but the book also has a really great, uh, a really great science fiction weapon in it that's extremely counterintuitive mm-hmm. uh, that comes in toward the end. I won't say any more than that. It's um, it's, a, it's 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 not a um, piece of wood with a nail in it, though. In case no. you, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I really like this idea of a uh, a, a super intelligent post biological being being challenged to try to write poetry that transcends the great poets of earth. Like uh, the example in the story would be, uh, would be Lee by, I think uh, a lot of Western readers probably know his name spelled more like uh, Lee Poe or Lee Bo often like L I P O or L I B O. But like a, a Tang Tang dynasty era poet, who's just a wonderful poet. And so it raises the question of like, well, you know, if this, if this being is so 
uh, so intellectually past human beings, why would it be that it couldn't write poetry better than, you know, the, the, than the poetry produced by the best of this, you know, uh, biologically confined uh, species on the planet Earth? Well, I think there actually maybe is something plausible to that because, you know, almost all great art is about like suffering in some way. Uh, and so if you were to take a being that is, is just like so powerful, it essentially has no real wants or physical limitations. You can imagine how a being like that could have real trouble creating compelling narratives uh, that that would like uh, speak emotionally to the experience of beings who are limited like humans are. Yeah. So then it has to take human form and uh, try and create human art. Oh, it has to be the word made flesh, right? It has to come down and become one of us. Yeah, exactly. How else can it possibly understand us? So yeah, definitely. Uh, Thank you for the recommendation, Chris. I, I will have to look that that story up. All right. Well, well, Carney, our mailbot, has even more machine and AI and robotic-based listener mail for us here today. Yes, this next message is a response to uh, part one of our episode about punishing machines. This comes from Karen. Karen says, love the show. I'm just going to jump into this. I think that if we judge a robot able to commit a crime, the robot is also implicitly able to have a crime committed against it. But if a human or another robot victimizes a robot, what would the consequences be? Let's say that I commit a crime against a robot. I take the Amazon virtual assistant Alexa and throw the device on the floor, constituting an assault on Alexa. What happens next? What is justice to her? Is it based on the robot's programmed values, likes, dislikes, or goals? If so, then Alexa's greatest value is supporting Amazon, and her goal is to sell Amazon products. What do you do with that? Another silly example. Think of the security robot who drove into a pond. I like that you say who, by the way. Uh, Think of the security robot who drove into a pond and drowned itself in 2017. People saw that happen. Would people who witnessed a robot uh, getting damaged without stopping it be guilty of some sort of neglect? If they were, what would make it right to the robot? If you made it this far, thanks for reading. And what do you think? Uh, well, Karen, uh, we actually do talk about this a little bit in uh, part two of that series, but uh, I, I've been thinking about it more since we recorded that part two. And I think this raises some really good questions. Uh, so a, a few distinctions on my thoughts about whether robots could be the victim of a crime. I would say at the surface level, this depends, uh, at least in my opinion, on whether the robot is conscious or not. And I, I think the standard assumption today is that machines like the Amazon Alexa, even complex machines, they're not conscious. Uh, but in the future, it might be hard to say. And this gets back, of course, to the hard problem of consciousness, which we talked about in the Machine Lords of Barnard 68 episodes. Uh, if we don't know what consciousness is and why it arises in the first place, even in biological brains like ours, it's going to be hard to judge whether a non-biological machine could ever be conscious or not. So this is just a, a big open question to me. I don't really come down on one side or the other. But with that huge caveat, I, I would say that I think if robots are ever able to be conscious, If for whatever reason we decide, yes, they are having an inner experience like we are, then I think the obvious implication would be that they have the right to be protected against harm just like anybody else. But for an Alexa or whatever, since I don't think anybody really has suspicions that Alexa is conscious or that Alexa has any kind of internal experience, 
I think harm done against an Alexa would really just be a property crime against its owner. Like if you were to damage somebody's wheelbarrow or something. Uh, but then there's another big complication that I'll throw in that, that your uh, email really made me think about, which is the possible brutalizing effect on society and on onlookers of tolerating crime against robots that appear to be conscious, even though they're not. This is something that I'd take kind of seriously. So I'm imagining a scenario like this. See if this makes any sense to you, Rob. Uh, like, so we imagine most people are still decided that, yeah, there's nothing that it's like to be a robot. Robots can't actually suffer. So they don't have like inherent rights that we need to protect because there's nothing that it's like to be them. They, they just don't care. But if you were to make a robot that convincingly acted out suffering when it was harmed, and then you just had lots of robots like this constantly like being harmed in public view, say like a, a humanoid looking robot that could just like sit there while somebody beat it with a stick and it would scream in pain. S something does seem like very wrong about that, that just being stimuli that we are constantly exposed to and doing nothing about, you know, it almost yeah. seems like that, that would have a kind of horrible numbing effect on onlookers that would desensitize them to the real suffering of human beings and of animals. Yeah. Uh, I guess on a related note, I know in, in my household with a, uh, with a, with a child, we, we have, stressed uh, at times that, you know, even though, you know, Alexa or Amazon or Google or whatever you're talking to, uh, you know, even though it's not a real person and we're very clear about that, um, you know, you, it, you shouldn't talk mean, mean to it. You know, you should, mm -hmm. you should be nice when you address the, the robot. You shouldn't be, you know, un unnecessarily, um, uh, you know, angry or, or, you know, or anything like that. Uh, likewise, we've, we've had this discussion of when it, when one is playing against, a, an AI in a game, uh, particularly, you know, certainly if it's like an enemy AI, but, but more specifically, you know, if it's something like an online settlers of Catan situation where mm -hmm. it's like a fake human player, like mm -hmm. you, you're not allowed to, to just say mean things to the the non-human in the in the chat box uh, because that it just sets a weird precedent, you know. Right. It's it, and it's not because it would hurt the AI. It's because it like it trains you to behave that way, and eventually yeah. you may end up behaving that way towards somebody who could actually be harmed by it. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, of course, this gets into a whole additional area of like how do we treat. How do we treat, uh, you know, virtual entities in simulated environments and in games? Yeah. Well, I guess this starts to sort of bleed over into the bigger, uh, big controversial question of like whether, uh, you know, whether video games that have violence in them train people to commit violence in the real world. Uh, and I'm certainly not taking a position on that. I, I, I don't uh, have an, a strong opinion one way or another about that. Maybe we could look at the research more on that in the future. But um but I mean, I would say that there, there's something like if something is happening in physical space and you're seeing people actually like use physical violence against a robot or be, uh, you know, performatively verbally abusive to a robot even in, in real physical space and nothing is it's just being tolerated. Something about that, at least intuitively to me, would ha would seem to have a kind of deadening and, and very detrimental effect on on the culture. Right. But then again, we have to be open to the idea that there could conceivably be situations in which the robot's presence is intolerable. Maybe it's not the robot's fault, but 
um, like say there's some sort of a I mean to go back to the cigarette robot example from the right, the, the yeah. first episode if if the cigarette bot can roll into your house uninvited mm-hmm. I mean I I think you should be able to um, to kick it out of your house right. Uh, Right. Yeah, sure. You know, we are not going to stand for the tyranny of cigarette bot. Yeah, maybe. So that's the other side of it. Maybe maybe we should. Maybe there are cases where it's actually good to uh, to appear to violate the rights of a robot. If that robot represents something really evil and bad that you want to, like, demonstrate your disapproval (laughs) against. I, I guess that that actually did come up in the paper. They were talking about arguments that, like part of what juries sometimes want to do is just like symbolically demonstrate moral opprobrium. Yeah. Here's an idea. What what if you could build up moral willpower by having a robot devil that actually sits on your shoulder and is constantly trying to tempt you to do evil. And so you like just practice ignoring it all the time. Yeah. 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 I guess so. I could see that working. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if I could. I mean, I could see people doing it. I don't know if it would work. Uh. <laughs> At any rate, we'll, we'll let the, the listeners decide on that. Uh, here's another bit of listener mail for us. This comes to us from Jim in New Jersey. Robert and Joe, I would like to update the trolley car problem slightly for uh, um, autonomous vehicles. It's not a choice of whether the car strikes the elderly couple or the mother pushing the baby stroller, inflicting the least possible harm. It's whether the car chooses to crash into a wall or tree, seriously injuring or killing the passengers, or to strike pedestrians, injuring or killing them while leaving the passengers mostly unscathed. But let's make it a bit more interesting. Uh, and the, uh, Jim includes a, a few um, uh, caveats here. First of all, it's a choice between one passenger and a group of pedestrians, or it's a choice between a group in the vehicle and one pedestrian, or it's a choice between an equal number of people in the vehicle and an equal number of pedestrians. Does the car's decision favor passenger safety as the car moves from basic utility vehicles into more expensive luxury models? I don't know what these uh, answers are or should be. There are no easy answers, Jim. I think this raises a great point, uh, Jim. And we actually, I think we, this is probably a response that came in after part one published, but before part two. So we sort of address some of this in part two, but this raises a bunch of other uh, permutations that we didn't get into. Uh, and and one thing that these variations really highlight for me is um, a, a problem that we also did not really get into in the episode, which is. Uh, making life or death decisions when the probabilities of the outcomes that you're trying to choose between are very uncertain. So we were talking about how an autonomous vehicle in reality is going to have to make like trolley car type decisions all the time. But actually what it's going to have to do is make like a trolley problem decision where it's not one track with one person versus another track with multiple people. It's going to be lots of uh, abstract branches of probabilities. Like you, you have an X percent probability that someone will be injured or harmed on this track versus that track. And, and a lot of times those probabilities, even that the machine judges with the best of information available to it are just going to be wrong. So it's not just that the decision will have to be made, but the decision will have to be made necessarily on incomplete information that could be, could be very misguided. Uh, just one example, like if, An autonomous vehicle is trying to make a split second decision to minimize harm in an oncoming wreck. Uh, It's going to have to make judgments like how many people are in the other car, but like how well it seems like that's something that's often going to be difficult or impossible to determine. Yeah. 
or like what's the probability that people will be, will be injured or killed in certain collisions. I think it's, it's unfortunately, it just gets more and more difficult. The more you try to get into the details on it though, as we were saying in the episode, a number of times, uh, it's, it's not like this is a scenario where the, the human driver naturally has an advantage. I mean, human drivers, I think are often just like making split second decisions based on almost no reasoning whatsoever is just sort of like instinctual jerky movements. Yeah. Though the individual human is not going to see their own driving that way. <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a complicated situation. Okay, this next message is about dad jokes and a former listener mail episode. It comes from Muhammad. Muhammad just says, uh, hey, guys, just listen to a bit in the listener mail episode about indicating sarcasm in text. And I wanted to point out another sarcasm indicator I see a lot on social media that I think works really well. Alternating upper and lowercase letters. It reads intuitively to me as mocking and sarcastic. And that's mm. the whole message, except Muhammad attaches a, a picture of a tattoo uh, where it it's one of those like they say I say things. So the parents mm -hmm. say you'll regret that tattoo when you get older, and then the response is me also saying you'll regret that tattoo when you get older. But it's alternating upper and lowercase letters, and then the tattoo below that is a weird looking SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This looks fine. I mean, it's not a Squidward tattoo for crying out loud. It's, it's a SpongeBob. It's a weird Wait, SpongeBob, but it's good. I don't know the difference. What, what what would be the deal if it was a Squidward tattoo? Does that have political significance? No, no. It's just like Squidward. You, have you ever watched SpongeBob? Uh, no, never a whole episode. I mean, okay. I know what it is, but. Well, I, I could explain it to you, but the best thing to do, just you'd have to watch and then you'll you'll understand the context. But yeah, Squidward is one of the other characters. And uh, I guess there are Squidward tattoos out there. Maybe there's some great Squidward tattoos. Um, but I, I feel like SpongeBob is the better choice. <laughs> I did not know we would get factionalism in the response to this, but this is good. All right, let's get to some uh, Weird House-related uh, listener mail here. This one comes to us from Chris. Uh, offhand, I don't know if this is the same Chris as earlier, but at any a rate, different one. Different Chris. A lot of Chris. We've got a lot of Chris's. A lot of Chris's out there. All right, this Chris says, hello, Rob and Joe. Well, we all have that first time it denied was the night. I experienced Highlander. Ooh. This is not related to any recent podcast specifically, but after searching and watching related Weird House cinema shows on Prime, I'm being presented with quite the bevy of sci-fi and Weird House options. So tonight I tried out Highlander. It's not over yet, but Sean Connery is Egyptian, but has a Scottish accent. Well, <laughs> just roll with it, I guess. Onward. Um, on another uh, note, the dad joke episode was great. I'm a father to four children. The oldest is the same age as your son, Robert, and she has gotten to the point where she's trying her hand at making up jokes. A few land with her siblings or parents, but most are rather misunderstood, but she persists. As far as the way a captive audience reinforces our dad jokes, this is spot on. The wordplay uh, jokes and fart innuendo just make uh, makes for an easy target for the five to nine year old age group. Fortunately, I'm going to have around a decade of time with children in that age range, so I'll be well entrenched in the dad joke mindset. So, one for the road then. Knock, knock. Who's there? Who? Who, who? What are you, an owl? 
Oof. Yeah, that's the end of the joke. Anyway, regards, Chris. <laughs> uh, I've encountered that one in the wild before. Now, as for Highlander, um, yeah, absolutely. Highlander is a, is a wonderful and, and weird film uh, that uh, I, I think about quite a bit. And obviously, we're, uh, we're big fans. Huge fans. Enormous fans. We're, we're princes of the universe over yes. here. Now, regarding the idea that Sean Connery is Egyptian in Highlander, I recall that's actually multiply confusing because, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's Sean Connery not even attempting to mask his Scottish accent, but he's playing a guy who comes from Egypt originally, but his name is Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez, and I think he is supposed to have been more recently Spanish, right? Yes. So, uh, you know, I don't know. It's the, I guess there are different ways you could crack that apart. I mean, the obvious answer is Sean Connery is not going to do an accent. He's going to do Sean Connery's accent. So he's going to be Scottish in any and everything, uh-huh. uh, whether he's playing an ancient Egyptian immortal or a, like a Russian submarine captain. Yes. You're, getting the, you're getting the same accent. But I don't know. You could, I guess, say that like if you live long enough, perhaps you're fluid enough to move through different cultures. You also move through different languages and you move through different accents. And I don't know how you wind up there. But like, I guess the thing is, you could look at it this way. Ramirez is traveling in Scotland at mm-hmm. the time uh, uh, in that movie. That's how he encounters McLeod. Um, therefore, perhaps he's just okay. merely shifted into Scottish mode. And indeed, we never see him in that film anyway, out of the Scottish context. So. That's right. Yeah, yeah, he's a worldly wanderer in the Highlands. He's like, he's like Brian Cox in Braveheart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I guess it makes – I'm going to go with it. I'm going to say it makes perfect sense. It's, it's, it, it makes perfect sense within the context of Highlander 1. I guess in Highlander 2, he's a ghost. So he's, he's just set in whatever he was right before he died. So you know what? I'm going to take it a step further. It works perfectly in Highlander 2 as well. I don't know if I agree that he's a ghost in Highlander 2. Isn't what, he? What, well, he's the product of some kind of necromancy from the planet Zeist. So the way it goes is he's killed in Highlander 1, and then many years in the future, uh, Connor McLeod yells his name. And then yelling his name causes him to be like reborn in Scotland. And then he comes to visit Connor McLeod. So I don't know what you call that. Yeah. I'm going to call it a ghost. I'm going to okay. stick with ghost. <laughs> okay. He appears very fleshy, but, yes. uh, but maybe, maybe a fleshy ghost. Okay, this next message is about Weird House Cinema. It comes from Andy. Andy says, Hey guys, I really dig the relatively new Weird House Cinema segment. I noticed you haven't done any animated features. Maybe wrong on that point. I haven't had the chance to listen to them all. So I had a couple of suggestions. Two of my personal favorites from when I was a kid. 1977's Wizards and 1983's Rock and Rule. Hmm. Both are fun and definitely strange post-apocalyptic animated features. Wizards is a Ralph Bakshi film with some great humor. Rock and Rule contains wonderful music by Lou Reed, Debbie Harry, and Cheap Trick, as well as a demon made of animated cow brains. Look forward to seeing your thoughts on these fantastically weird animated features. Andy. Well, Andy, I've read about both of these movies, but seen neither one. Same. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar with Rock and Rule at all, but I'm familiar with Wizards just because it's, it's often held up. It, it has a, you know, it, it, it's a it's favorite uh, for people who are into like 70s uh, weird animated features. And, uh, you know, I, I like wor- other work 
uh, by Ralph uh, Bakshi for sure. So I don't know. Maybe that one's in our future. I know we we have a couple, at least a couple of animated titles that we've been kind of knocking around. And uh, I think we may have some animated content uh, discussed on the show in the near future. So this one is from Landon, and Landon says, Hey guys, my older brother had a TurboGrafx-16. Rob, which I think this came up in Gunhead, right? Because we were talking yeah. about the idea of Gunhead having uh, ports for multiple systems as a video game. And one of them was a game on the TurboGrafx-16 that I don't recall playing. But when I was a kid, I had this uh, this weird game console. And we talked about the game Bonk's Adventure, which is about an aggressive caveman baby that headbutts dinosaurs to death. Yep. Yep. Uh, I had to look it up. It it is some sort of caveman baby. I also recall that uh, at some point, I think you have to rescue the princess of the moon or something. Like you go to the Mm. moon and the bad guys from the moon and the bad guy has been transforming dinosaurs into evil versions of themselves. And if you like headbutt the dinosaurs enough, they revert to their sort of sweet, nerdy former selves. Anyway. Uh, Landon goes on about other, uh, TurboGrafx-16 games, says, says Bonks was a great game, but Landon also says Keith Courage was good too. Now, Keith Courage, uh, I think the game was called Keith Courage in Alpha Zones, and this was a really bizarre game that I also had. It was a, it was a 2D platform side-scroller, but it had two very different types of levels, One was like, and they would alternate. You'd go one and then the other. One was this cute animated overworld where you'd walk around and and go into shops and stuff. And it was animated in a way that almost looked kind of like Earthbound or something, except 2D. Uh, Just like very like cute and sunny and bright. And then every other level was just this demonic nightmare in these caves with like satanic robots attacking you. Oh, wow. Very, uh, very hot and cold showers to use the uh, Grand Guignol uh, phrase. Uh, but then, anyway, Landon goes on. There was also a really cool racing slash adventure game, too. You had to wander a world and look for people to race. <laughs> I wish I remember what it was called. I don't know what that one was, Landon. Mm-hmm. But Landon says, uh, I've been really enjoying the Weird House Cinema episodes. Uh, I've seen several that have been covered. Robot Jocks was a childhood favorite for me and my brothers. Crash and burn became a catchphrase for us. <laughs> what do you think about doing an episode on the movie Universal Soldier? Thanks for the great shows, Landon. Hmm. Um, well, I don't know. Universal Soldier. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but I don't know. I guess anything's possible. We we often have this discussion. Like we we don't really have a a, a set in stone criteria for Weird House Cinema. Is mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a does it feel right? Does it feel like it fits? Uh, mm-hmm. And and then we kind of go with it. So I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at Universal Soldiers. Roland Emmerich, isn't it? I think is it. Yeah. I, I believe it was an early one of his films. I could be wrong about that. Speaking of Roland Emmerich, ooh, Rachel and I just recently decided to re- revisit a movie I hadn't seen in a long time. We watched the 1998 Godzilla directed by Roland Emmerich, and what a travesty. Just That movie <laughs> is just dreck. No offense to anybody who worked on it, but yeah, just – uh, I don't know. As someone who's who's come to really be more discerning about uh, kaiju type films as as time goes on, that one is just the bottom of the barrel. This is the the Godzilla in name only uh, picture. Uh, I I don't know what you mean by that. I mean, it, 
it's the one with Matthew Broderick and John Renault and, mm. and those people. Yeah, yeah. I think it's sometimes called. I've seen it referred to as Gino, as Godzilla in name only. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, like most of the movie is not actually Godzilla. It's Matthew Broderick and a bunch of people running around in a building, running from Velociraptors. I think they're supposed mm. they're baby Godzillas, but it, so it came out a few years after Jurassic Park, and so there are raptor-sized baby Godzillas doing most of the action in the film. Well, you know, Roland Emmerich, he uh, he had some he did some fun pictures though. We have to remember he did Stargate. Oh Stargate yeah, Stargate was kind yeah. of fun, you know. Stargate was fun. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, but yep, same. I remember it had a gloriously befuddled James Spader in it. It was James Spader in Hugh Grant mode. Yeah, yeah, and there was some fun uh, teleportation hijinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, I'm a little little foggy on what happened. Okay. All right, here's another bit of listener mail. This one comes to us from Cheryl. Cheryl writes, I've come across a movie that might be suitable for this feature. It is a late 60s sort of movie when studios were trying to catch up with youth culture. It goes about as well as you'd expect. I'd be interested in your take on it. The Magic Christian stars Peter Sellers and Ringo Starr with an amazing cast of credited and uncredited actors, including John Cleese and Wilford Hyde White. Yul Brynner sings a torch song in drag very well, too. Thanks for what you do. Best, Cheryl. Oh, I've seen The Magic Christian. This movie is nuts. I also, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it's, uh, it doesn't really have, as far as I recall, much of an overarching narrative. It's not like a plot driven movie. It's more just kind of a series of bizarre vignettes strung together of, uh, of people like, uh, the the main thing I remember about it is it has like somebody who's got a lot of money, uh, tricking people into, like like doing pranks on people, essentially getting people into bizarre scenarios uh, under the impression uh, under the idea that people will do anything for money. Mm. Yeah, I've I've never seen it, uh, but yeah, it does have a lot of interesting people attached to it, and I don't know. It seems to be part of a a genre that I have very little exposure to. Sort of a like a, a late sixties uh, British satire sort of film. Um, mm-hmm. Like I was looking at Joseph McGrath's uh, uh, work here, a Scottish film director, and it's a lot of stuff that I've never heard of, but also stuff like uh, the 1967 Casino Royale adaptation, which uh, uh, had Peter Sellers in it and Ursula Andrews, David Niven, et cetera. Yeah, I, th- I think it was based on something that was written by uh, by the writer Terry Southern. And uh, actually, in fact, I remember, uh, I'm pretty sure The Magic Christian was a favorite of former show host Christian Sager. Really? Okay. Yeah. Huh. Maybe that's, maybe that's why it sort of rings a bell. Like, maybe I remember him talking about it. Yeah. All right. What do we have? Looks like we have one left in the bag there. Ah, yeah. Okay. This comes from Greg. Greg, uh, also writing about Weird House Cinema, says... The Keep is an interesting film by Michael Mann, his second feature. I was super excited to see this movie when it first came out after seeing production stills in maybe Fangoria. Mm. Anyway, the film is a beautifully shot, confusing mess with Nazi SS troops, an immortal warrior, and pure evil. Every fog machine ever made cranked to 11 during the whole thing. Oh, and an all-star cast. Look it up. Maybe worth a visit for Weird House Cinema. Thanks and love the show. Greg. Have you seen The Keep, Rob? 
I haven't. It's been on my list for a long time. I think it's one that I've occasionally like powered up. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I think tonight's the night. I'm going to watch the keep, and then it just doesn't happen for one reason or another. I'm almost positive it's got a Tangerine Dream score. Surely that, that's oh, what that, lured you in. That's probably it. Uh, I mean, also, you know, the idea, like Michael Mann is not really known for his genre pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you tend to, so, so the idea of uh, the, the, one of his early films had a bunch of supernatural weirdness and, and uh, you know, and, and, and Nazis and stuff. Uh, it, it sounds worth checking out. I've certainly talked to people who are big fans of, of this flick. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is Weird House material. Uh, I did look it up. I can confirm it is music by Tangerine Dream. Uh, and and it fits because the movie has a kind of that, that Tangerine Dream sort of slow, uh, dreamy quality to it. There's lots of fog floating around. And the, the cast is really excellent. I don't think I could say it's a good movie. Uh, Gl- uh, Greg is correct that this movie is is very confusing and it do- I don't recall it having much of a like a very propulsive narrative. But it's got great actors in it. It's got Scott Glenn as some kind of strange, like chosen one type figure who is who is drawn to this war zone in Europe uh, by supernatural forces. I think at some point his eyes start glowing, and I recall Scott Glenn has unbelievable what do you call the muscles on top of your shoulders, uh, the where like your clavicle to your neck, those things. Um. Yeah, those traps are those traps. Traps, sure. I'm yeah, sure. his his traps are off the charts. His traps are <laughs> unbelievable. Scott Glenn's uh, great. Uh, I mean, really, this whole. I mean, you look at the people in this film. It's like Gabriel Byrne, Ian McKellen, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Bruce Ian, Payne shows up. I think he's basically just a, a rando in it. But like Bruce Payne is a great B movie actor as well. Yeah, Ian McKellen is of course wonderful as always. Uh, I think Jurgen Prock now is in it. He plays a Nazi. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Gabriel Byrne plays a Nazi in it. So it I, the, the elevator pitch is that this demon in a cave who looks like a bodybuilder hellspawn slash robot mm-hmm. comes to life, is awakened somehow, and kills a bunch of Nazis. Yeah, I think I've seen a picture of the, the entity in question, and he looks like he's probably uh, Thanos's personal trainer. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, he does lift. He, the, this, this demon does lift, bro. <laughs> well, I mean, say no more. It's got a Tangerine Dream score, so I'd, I'd watch it. Okay, well, maybe this goes on the list for the future. And yeah, it is funny seeing this come out of Michael Mann, who I, I think Michael Mann is a great filmmaker. I really enjoy a lot of his movies, but most of the ones I can think of are like sort of crime thriller type movies, like some of the best of that genre. But uh, yeah, you don't really think of him as making horror movies. Yeah. Though uh, one movie of his that I think is is really overlooked uh, is he in the like mid to late 2000s, I think like 2005 or six or so did a Miami Vice movie. Did you ever yeah. see this? No, I never did. I know the film in question, though. Uh, this movie is... It is not at all what you would expect. It, uh, it, it, So it's just a, you know, like, cops dealing with crime and drug smugglers and stuff in terms of story content. But stylistically, this movie is so dark and doomy it is like it's like the cop movie at the end of the world the cinematography is full of all this gray negative space and haunting low light it's it it is uh, astonishingly weird and beautiful in terms of how it looks for a cop movie which is what it is it i would say it's if you're into i don't know if that tickles your fancy you should you should look it up tangerine dream score oh i don't know okay well then i can't commit (laughs) okay 
All right. We're going to go ahead and close it up here, but uh, we'll be back next week with more listener mail. Keep it coming. Um, uh, you know, it, feel free to write in about any topics, past or present, or potentially future. Uh, stuff to blow your mind. Weird House Cinema. Uh, n- you know, never be shy about even chiming in between part one and part two of a series, because that that's exactly what, what the case with the Punishing Robots listener mail that we read in this episode. Because we are recording this episode uh, between the publication of part one and part two. Right. Yes. Good. Good. Thank you for noting. Uh, anyway, thanks as always to our excellent audio producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.